Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast, this special edition of the podcast specifically, is part of my mission to help you live a safe and science-informed life. So today's guest is one of my oldest, best, smartest friends, Dr. Michael Rothberg from the Cleveland Clinic. And we had a Skype conversation that is pretty poor quality because I am in lockdown in South Africa with my family, just got a little laptop and, you know, kind of travel office. And uh, Michael is at his home in Cleveland. And I just wanted to talk to him just to set us straight about this coronavirus, what it's doing, uh, what it's about, what we know, what we don't know. He's a researcher. He's a um, a, a practicing uh, clinician. And he has done a lot of uh, of research on influenza over the years, and so is is very well versed in um, infectious disease modeling. He's also the person um, whom I haven't had on the podcast because he kind of like breaks down all of my confirmation biases. Um, like I believe plant-based nutrition is the way to go. And he's the guy who doesn't have a dog in the fight, but points out all the flaws in uh in my case. And frankly, it annoys me because I want to be right. And (laughs) in this case, uh, having a friend like that, having a person that we can talk to who is not interested in being right, who does not want to have opinions, but just wants to share, here's the facts, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Um, It's it's really, really valuable. So I'm going to stop here and just share this conversation with you. I'll be back at the end for another minute or two. Um, Stay safe, everybody. And uh, without further ado... Dr. Michael Rothberg, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Hey, Howie. So, um, yeah, tell, uh, we're, we're doing a, a special edition today, talk about uh, COVID-19 and, and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, everybody's an expert and everybody's Facebook feed has all the information and everybody disagrees. So why don't we start with like your... Your CV, your credentials, and what you're what you're working on right now, so that people know, you know, to what to what extent uh, to put stock in this conversation. Sure. So I'm a physician, uh, general internist, and um, I'm also a researcher. So I run the Center for Value Based Care Research at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, but any uh, opinions that I express here are my own, and they don't represent the organization. Um, I, my background training, I have a master's in public health, um, and I've done some disease modeling. I used to study influenza um, oh, about 15 years ago, um, so I'm familiar with the idea of pandemics and pandemic preparedness, um, though I haven't done a lot of influenza research recently. I've been mostly focused on pneumonia. Okay, cool. Um, and, you know, I, I should also add, we, we've known each other since um, 1977, <laughs> Yeah, um, best friends, and we we have had frequent arguments over on just about every single topic. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that unlike a lot of people whose egos are bound up in their 
and the content of, of their research and their findings and their discoveries. I think you, your identity is very much bound up in obliterating all the biases that you might find uh, within yourself. So really, um, you know, seeking, seeking truth and making that your identity as opposed to finding something out and then hoping that it's, or, you know, insisting that it's the truth. Yeah, well, I think that's accurate and I'm, I'm honored that, that you see me that way. Um, you know, I think all of us, we get opinions and then um, as human beings, our, our natural tendency is to try to look for things that confirm our, our opinions and, and to discard information that goes against it. Um, I try not to have opinions about a lot of things so that I can just sort of uh, look for the truth and uh, be swayed by the facts. Excellent. So let's uh, let's let's talk about what what you've been swayed by. What 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 do we I mean, what do we know about coronavirus right now? Um, and what do we not know? Um, so what we know is that um, that the virus is a um, it's a virus, first of all, um, it's uh, in the same strain as the SARS virus um, that you may remember from uh, about 15 years ago. Um, but it's not as deadly as SARS, uh, which is good and bad. One is it hasn't killed as many people as SARS would have if, uh, if it infected this many people. But on the other hand, it's actually... Uh, easier to catch than SARS. Uh, and people, uh, because it's mild in, in some cases, uh, people don't necessarily know that they have it. Uh, and so they're probably spreading it to other people. Um, and so we haven't been frightened enough of it, uh, certainly at the outset. Um, and so that's, that's made it particularly difficult to contain. Um, so we know that it, particularly affects um, older people. And when I say older people, I mean people over 50. Uh -huh. <laughs> so like us, um, it, it starts to get really bad uh, after the age of 70 or 80. Um, you know, so for, for people in their 50s, the mortality rate is about 1%. Um, and it goes up from there. Um, so after the age of 80, uh, you're talking in excess of 15% mortality, which is really devastating. Mm. Now, do we know how it spreads? So we don't actually. Um, that's one of the things that's, you know, uh, pretty amazing that there's so much that we know about the virus and yet so little. Um, with, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases around the world, we still don't really know exactly how it spreads. Uh, we do know that the virus, for example, can live on, uh, you know, on inanimate objects for long periods of time. We don't know if that's how people get it, but it's certainly possible. Um, it doesn't live for very long on cardboard. Um, and so if you're worried about the boxes that you're bringing in, that your Amazon shipments or whatever, um, probably by the time you've gotten them, uh, the virus has died, but certainly if you left it for 24 hours before you touched it, uh, you would be totally fine. Uh, it does live for longer on plastic and, um, and steel, um, and it, it may live, you know, for up to a week, perhaps on plastic. 
Um, so, you know, it's theoretically possible that if you touch something that somebody else has touched who had the virus, you could get it. Um, the thing about that, though, is we know that the um, infection rate from the virus, um, the, the R0, is, is really probably two to three. That is, each person who's infected infects another two to three people. You would think if it were so infectious that if you, if, if you just you know, picked up a plastic container in the supermarket, you could get it that way, that we would see a much larger number of people infected that each person who is infected might infect 10 or 20 or 30 people. Um, that's what we see with measles. Um, measles is spread um, you know, through the air, and pretty much anybody in a room with somebody who has measles can come down with it. Um, in this case, we think it's probably spread uh, by droplets, and we think droplets don't, you know, don't generally go more than a few feet, so if that's the recommendation for the six-foot um, social distancing rules. But again, you know, we haven't done experiments where we try to infect people um, because it's just too dangerous. So we don't really know what the major mode of, of spread is. We have these sort of theoretical modes. Um, so, you know, keeping a distance of six feet and washing your hands frequently, and particularly when they come into contact with anything outside your home, um, and avoiding touching your face so that you don't spread it from your hands to your face are um, really prudent things to do, and they should be sufficient for you know the ways that we think it would be spread. Gotcha. And could you give us a sense of like how we know what we know, or how we uh, you know conjecture what we conjecture? Like what what is as 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 a researcher, what are you seeing that you then translate into guidance to the public? Right. So you know, in charge of understanding. Um, you know, the, the number of people who are infected from each infected person, that's done by modeling studies. Um, and you can create computer simulations of viruses and then, um, you know, match them against what's observed in, um, you know, in, in real life. So if, for example, you, you, you created a model where you said, okay, each person who's infected will now infect 10 people. Um, and then you applied that to New York City you know, the entire city would be, you know, it'd have 8 million cases already. Um, so that's how they're able to figure out how many people are infected from, from each other person. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, figuring out how the virus is transmitted, um, they do that by, you know, you can take the virus and you can put it on different things and then you can see how long can you get viral particles that are, that are viable, that can infect cells from those surfaces but that doesn't mean that a person who you know touches that surface and then touches their face will necessarily get enough viral particles for them to be infected and again we can't we can't do that kind of experiment to figure it out because it, it's too dangerous um, so you know th those are kind of indirect evidence of how the disease is spread um, but they're pretty good for us figuring it out you know, at least in figuring out what our behavior ought to be. Mm -hmm. gotcha. So when you say it, it's um, more uh, lethal over the age of 50 and much more lethal over the age of 70 or 80, is there any either evidence or theories about why that is? Because I, I hear people talking about, you know, I'm in the lifestyle medicine world, so everyone's talking about, you know, boost your immune system. 
you know, eat right, get exercise, manage your stress, sleep, all that stuff. And then I hear other people saying that it seems like the infection actually may be an immune overreaction. So is there, is there some understanding of the mechanism by which it either, you know, leaves you with a mild flu or destroys you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so different viruses seem to have different um, predilections for, for various age groups. Um, sometimes it has to do with previous immunity that people have had. Um, so if you remember the H1N1 um, virus, the, the swine flu that came out a bunch of years ago, mm-hmm. um, that actually seemed to preferentially be dangerous to young people. Um, and people our age uh, seem to have some protection. Even older people had even more protection, probably from, from H1N1 that was circulating in the 50s and 60s. Um, so, yeah, there, there are different. This, this one doesn't seem to have, you know, um, really severe impacts, though. There are some, you know, it's not like it's totally safe for people in their 20s and 30s to get it. But for the most part, they seem to have you know, more mild cases, less likely to end up in the hospital. Um, the older you get, um, even into your thirties and forties, um, you're more likely to end up in the hospital. And, and then, uh, after that, more likely to die. Um, it is true that it is, uh, it does appear to be a kind of an immune overreaction. Um, what you mentioned before about, um, you know, uh, trying to protect yourself by being in good immune shape, um, those are always good ideas in terms of trying to prevent becoming infected in the first place. And that's really a question that we've, I've not seen, uh, you know, answered is why do some people get sick when they get exposed to a virus and other people don't? Um, we don't really have a way of predicting who's going to get sick and how sick they're going to get. Um, but there are general things that we know boost your immune system. So, getting enough sleep, uh, exercise, eat right, and try to de-stress. Um, obviously, these are difficult to do in these times, um, but those are always good ideas for uh, boosting your immune system. So in terms of measures of immune function, those things you know, improve immune function. I, I've not seen actually studies where they tried to improve people's immune function and then expose them to a virus and see if they get sick. So again, we don't have... Um, necessarily all the pieces there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have that kind of indirect evidence. I think, you know, the things that boost your immune function are also the things that make you healthy. So those are those are good recommendations all the time, um, and even more so now. Um, in terms of uh, what people die from with the virus, it does seem that it, the, the virus stimulates a, a really strong immune reaction, um, particularly after a couple of weeks. So usually the first couple of weeks people are sick and then uh, they either get better or they go into this um, hyperimmune phase where the immune system is doing damage to their lungs. And that's when they end up in the hospital and in the ICU. And we've seen that in lots of different disease states. It's not um, something that only happens with this virus. Uh, and we're not very good at controlling it. Um, it's called acute respiratory distress syndrome. It happens in sepsis. It happens in a lot of different um, conditions. And, you know, we've got plenty of target therapies that might work. Um, but we've been working on this for decades and, um, you know, without a lot of success. So mostly what we do is try to support people 
Um, and that usually means a ventilator when their lungs stop working. Um, and that's why you're hearing about ventilator shortages because once you can't breathe on your own, if you don't have a ventilator available to you, you will die. Mm -hmm. right. So, um, sorry, I, that was really grim. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> this is a grim conversation and a grim topic. So I'm, I'm as, as you know, my family and I are, are in lockdown in South Africa where the you know the the cases are you know pretty much doubling every two days um we lockdown starts tonight at midnight and you know as you know there's there's a lot of poverty here and a lot a lot of people who are hiv positive and on uh you know the antiretrovirals Do you, does your understanding of the immune system predict like are people with uh, hiv aids um do they need to stop like are they you know, much more at risk, would they, would they need to stop taking their antiretrovirals to to tune down their immune system or like what? No, what, what are <laughs> no, we expecting? They should not do that. They should continue to take their antiretrovirals. Um, you know, the, 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 there was some hope that uh, antiretrovirals or other antiviral medications might help. Um, so far, um, there haven't been any antiviral medications that have been shown to um, you know, to improve outcomes, but we really don't have a lot of research. Um, that's one of the sort of sad points, I think, is that, you know, despite how many cases there have been, there's, there's just precious little research out there. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, some excitement around uh, hydrochloroquine, um, which is an anti-malarial drug that's used actually for treating uh, autoimmune diseases. Um, that was a, a study of 24 patients um, and not a randomized trial. And, um, you know, given how many people we have and how available the drug is, uh, you would really like to see, you know, we should have studied hundreds of patients by now, if not thousands. Um, but we don't have an organized way to set up these studies really fast. Um, and, and that's really what we need right now. We need science. Yeah, so um, I want to come back to that. No, actually, I want to I want to go there now. Um, <laughs> okay. So, like every, in every aspect of life, it feels like bureaucracy is breaking down as people like get their heads out of their asses and start making like good decisions. Like we just had to, our flight out to the U.S. was canceled um, this morning, so we called the rental car company to convert our daily into a monthly. And order, this is in South Africa, where, you know, like it's not entirely customer friendly like that. And like within 20 minutes, they had figured out a way to do it, which although they had never, ever done it before. And it seems amazing that like science, like where where have we been? You know, like this started in January or we found out about it in January. What what has happened that our scientific establishment and the medical establishment is so far behind? So I'll tell you, the research establishment, first of all, never moves very fast. Like we're used to, you know, doing things slowly and methodically. So um, to, to ramp up a, a kind of a research uh, response, um, we, we, our infrastructure isn't created to do that. Um, and so a lot of the things that happen happen uh, kind of piecemeal. There's a lot of um, ingenuity going on, and there's a lot of uh, people sort of taking control and doing things themselves. What we don't have is a kind of a centralized leadership. Um, we have a, a very sort of reactive 
um, federal government for, you know, right now. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the CDC tried to make a test uh, early on and um, the test was faulty. Nobody expected that. That wasn't in anybody's um, pandemic preparedness plan that the United States wouldn't be able to create a test. Hmm. Uh, a lot of other countries created tests and they were, you know, they were all successful. So um, and I think sort of having our eggs all in one basket, expecting that our test was, was going to work and, and we would just use this one centralized CDC test, um, that was, you know, just a, a massive fail. Um, and we're still kind of recovering from that because we don't have enough tests. We don't know who has the virus. We don't know how to isolate the people, you know, who have it. Um, so that, that was sort of how things got out of, out of hand in the beginning. Why didn't we just ask the other countries for the test? Um, yeah, that, I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, all these countries, I think, develop their tests independently. It's it's not that hard to develop the test. Um, I don't know why we chose this particular case to have a centralized planning uh, thing where the CDC was going to. Uh, I mean, in in theory, it's not a bad idea to have the CDC do that if they're able to do it at scale and um, you know know where all the outbreaks are in the country to try to manage them. Um, but this just happened so fast and our testing capabilities were totally overwhelmed. You know, the CDC had ability to process, you know, two to 300 tests a day um, for the whole country. And they were the only ones who could do the testing. Um, I think once that really became sort of widely known and people realized the extent of the problem, uh, you had, you know, just hospital labs saying we're going to develop our own tests um and so cleveland clinic you know came up with their own test um and they've been testing you know a thousand people a day um but that's not nearly enough uh we need the commercial testing companies to be doing this and i think they're all working on tests now but um you know it's just if we had had these tests a month ago um we we would have been in much better shape how, how so? Like, OK, so we know that now more people are we know who better who has it and who doesn't. But how, how does that translate into saving lives, into, you know, reducing the, the social and economic impact? Sure. Well, what would you do right now if you knew you had it? Um, well, pretty much the same thing I'm doing now. <laughs> would you interact with your family? Um. Well, if, if I had it and they didn't, then I would, yeah. then I would, no, I would separate from them. Right. And let's say, you know, they got tested and they had it, you know, so if you all had it, then you could interact, but you'd know not to leave the house. Right. Not even shopping, not for anything. You'd have people deliver food and leave it on your doorstep. Uh, um, so you know, the, the sort of thing of saying, well, maybe I have it or I was exposed to somebody and I don't know if I have it and I'll just sort of quarantine at home. You know, people don't take that with the same seriousness as if they know they have it. Mm -hmm. right. um, the other advantage of knowing you have it is, you know, when you got better. Um, so if we could test you and say you had it and now you don't have it anymore, you're no longer infectious. Now you're like a super person. You can go anywhere. Mm. You can do anything. You know, you don't need to be afraid. Um, you could go help out in the hospital. Huh. And you don't even need to wear a mask. I mean, it, it's um, 
you know, the testing is really helpful for, for a number of, of ways. And, and what you want to do is you want to identify all the people that were exposed to you. Uh, so who are all the people that you came into contact with in the last two weeks? And, and where were all the places that you went? And then have, go, you know, have the, the government go and contact all those people and test them. You know, quarantine them and then test them. And if they turn out to have it, then check all the people that they interacted with. Um, and, you know, that's how places like, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore managed to keep their cases down. Um, and, and, you know, South Korea, to some extent, did the same thing. And, you know, that, that's the, those were the lessons that we needed to learn. And we just missed it. And I, actually, I don't know why. You know, I don't know why it took us so long to develop the tests. I don't know why we still don't have enough tests, um, not nearly enough tests. You know, we're just we're actually rationing them more now than we were before because the need is so much greater. Hmm. Do you think I mean, this is speculative, but, you know, here being here in southern Africa where the president just goes on TV and announces this lockdown and to to applause from the, you know, at least the elites, the media, uh, you know, influencers whose voices can be heard. Um, and, you know, in these sort of more authoritarian countries, you know, like, do we simply have a a culture that that leaves us at risk because we're so laissez-faire about everything? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think, you know, first of all, um, it's sort of hard to believe that the virus is as bad as it is when you're sitting in a place that doesn't have very many cases. Um, I know my thinking has, you know, shifted on this over time as I've, you know, come to see, you know, how bad the infections are and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, I, I traveled right before it sort of, you know, started spreading locally, um, got back here or went to work for a few days, you know, before we decided to just have people stop going to work and work remotely. Um, and, you know, I don't know how dangerous it was for us going to work and all being in our own separate offices and, and relatively isolated for each other, but I definitely feel safer at home. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think all my employees are safer at home and, and we can, do most of what we could do before from home. So um, I, I think that, you know, if you're living in a, in a state that doesn't have a lot of cases or where they haven't detected the cases, even if there are a lot, uh, um, it, it's just hard to believe that this is really happening. Um, you know, and, and I guess there's a certain amount of alienation um, in the United States, one area from another. So people who are living in, in rural areas may look at New York City and say, well, that's New York City. That's not going to happen here in the same way that the United States looked at China and sort of said, well, you know, th those are the things that happen in Asia. Mm. That, that's what happens when people eat bats and live, you know, right on top of each other. And of course, that's going to happen to them. Uh, it won't happen here. And I think, um, you know, when it when it hit Italy, that was actually a blessing for us because if if we hadn't seen Italy, I don't know that we would have believed it was going to get so bad. That's when people really ramped up their response, because um, if it could happen to Italy, it could happen to us. Gotcha. Do you have any sense of you know the talk of, of a vaccine 
Um, like I hear that from people who don't know anything about drug testing, <laughs> like like they think, yeah. oh, well, we're going to have one in three weeks. Like what what's what's realistic in terms of uh, testing, developing testing and uh, propagating a vaccine? So, you know, all the estimates that I've heard are, you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, and I haven't heard anybody say that they think it's going to be less than that. Um, the first vaccine is you know, it has been developed, um, which is incredibly fast. It's the fastest that a vaccine has ever been developed. Um, but, you know, developing a vaccine and having a vaccine that is safe and effective are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, you know, people get panicked and they think something is better than nothing. And that's what's happened with the, you know, the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is that, you know, people have been going to their doctors and saying, prescribe this to me. And now we've got a national shortage. So we've got people who uh, take this for their autoimmune diseases who can't get the drug because the pharmacies are out. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, we got people taking this. It, it may not work. It probably doesn't work. In fact, I would say it almost certainly doesn't work. But um, I, I'm just beginning with the the. Um, experience that most things we try don't work. So um, I, I would be surprised if any therapy that we have is going to be effective. But right. um, so when we go with the vaccine, okay, so now we have a vaccine, but we haven't tested it at all. So the first step is, you know, you test and you see, one, does it make uh, an immune response? Two, does it uh, have any side effects that, uh, you know, are really horrible that kill people? Um and if you find that, you know, and so that will take, um, I would say probably, I don't know, four to six weeks before they can inject enough volunteers and figure out whether it's made an immune response and whether it's safe. Um, and that's and that's skipping all the the animal studies and the, the things that usually happen in, in clinical trials before we test it on humans. Um, well, the yeah, the phase one trials are, you know, to, to try to like figure out, you know, just does, is this safe? You know, can you, can you take this and, and then will it give you an immune response? And you don't know that the immune response is actually going to confer immunity to the disease. It just means that you actually made some antibodies, but those might not be effective antibodies. That's just, you know, like we could, we had, we've had many candidate vaccines for HIV and none of them have worked. You know, they make antibodies, but they, they're not effective for, um, you know, for stopping the virus. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we've never had a coronavirus vaccine before, um, which is which is actually one of the problems when we have these sort of pandemics, you know, because when there's a pandemic, when SARS was happening, there was a lot of interest in coronavirus and a lot of fear about coronavirus. And as soon as it died out, most of that interest went away. So there was really no incentive for... Um, you know, we, we could have developed the coronavirus vaccine, you know, more than 15 years ago. And then we'd have one ready to go and we'd know how to how to make coronavirus vaccines. Yeah. Now, when, um, when you say the interest went away, I assume it wasn't the scientists who were studying it, but the funding sources. Um, it's sort of all around. You know, I think most people thought most scientists, most pandemic people thought that they weren't thinking that coronavirus was going to be the, the thing. They, they thought it was going to be an influenza virus, mm -hmm. that it was going to be, you know, like the 
like the, the 1918 influenza um, that killed 50 million people around the world, they thought we're going to have another flu pandemic and mm -hmm. that's going to be the thing. And so most of the research and whatnot was focused on flu. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that there were people that study coronaviruses and were interested in coronaviruses. Um, and, but you're right, it's the funding for making a vaccine for a disease that may not show up for 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years. That's a big investment for a pharmaceutical company to make in the expectation that maybe, you know, there'll be a need for this. Um, so, you know, influenza, we know how to make those vaccines. Coronavirus, this is new. Yeah. Um, but our technology is much better than it used to be. So the fact that they're able to sequence the, the virus, they know exactly what causes it. They can start to think about targeted therapies um, and, and a vaccine in relatively, no, not re in, in absolute record time. Um, so, but I, all the estimates I, I've heard are 12 to 18 months. So mm. I, I believe those. Uh, it's funny how this, you know, model, this, um, you know, it's sort of a black swan event, like, yep. you know, and it's, it's the same way, like the stock market has responded, like with, with all the, you know, the most brilliant financial minds in the world, completely taken uh, by surprise because it, because black swan events, if you include them in your models, make you extremely inefficient and non-competitive yes, until, until the right. thing happens. Yes. I, that kind of, that, I feel like that has to change. Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, if you were to, to put every black swan event into your models and then prepare for every black swan event, you would be really, really inefficient. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what that would, um, what that would do to the world's productivity. But I think we would be basically spending a lot of our time, you know, preparing for things that weren't going to happen. Right. All right. Well, so um, you posted a bunch of tweets, a sort of a, a, a thread of like what you think the the policy response should be. And, it, you know, it deviates pretty significantly from what the policy response has been up to this point. Could you talk about like what what we can do, given that we're so far behind in terms of testing, in terms of public policy? Like what 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 can we do right now? Well, other, other than say, oops. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm not a policy person, so I just threw out what I thought was kind of a. Um, you know, a capitalist sort of response to the to the problem that we're having. I mean, the, the thing is, is that we're willing to spend a tremendous amount of money. I mean, basically, now that we understand what the impact on the economy could be, uh, we're really ready to spend just about any amount of money that's necessary. So um, Congress is about to pass a tr $2 trillion bill, um, but it's almost all focused on um, you know, economic fallout and, and not very much of it is focused on trying to end the, the problem that we have. Um, and so to the extent that money could end the problem that we have, it would be helpful to direct that money towards the problem rather than directing the money towards making people whole so that they can survive until our botched response gets, uh, you know, gets fixed. So, um, I, I concentrated on sort of four things that I think we need. 
um, which it seemed to me that money might be able to help with. Um, but I'm not sure because I don't know where the bottlenecks necessarily are. Um, the first one is testing, as, as we talked about. I would love to see us have you know, as much testing as possible. It seems like um, you know, more money might make that go better. Um, more, I think a lot of private companies and whatnot are looking into making tests or trying to make tests. I think they're doing it because it's the right thing to do and they want to try to save the country. But adding to that, the possibility of getting rich always you know, could help. Um, so I thought if we set a price for, you know, for uh, tests, for reliable tests that was really high, that would get a lot of people's attention and get them developing tests and working on tests and just have the government say, we'll buy all the tests that you can make, you know, up to 100, the, the first 100 million tests and set the price so that the companies can figure out, you know, whether they're going to make money doing it and set the price high enough so that everybody can make money doing it. Um, that would employ a bunch of people and um, they would get those uh, testing firms focused, you know, pretty much solely on this and not on anything else, which would, you know, be a problem potentially for some other diseases, but there's nothing else that's so important right now. Mm. Um, right. So you know, to, re we had to, remove, million... to remove the risk, the business risk of saying, well, what if we make all these tests and then they turn out not to be needed or no one's going to pay for yeah. it? Okay. Right. Got it. Uh, so, you know, if we put in an order right now for 100 million tests, um, at some exorbitant amount, like say $300 a test, um, you know, that's about $30 billion. You know, that that's nothing compared to $2 trillion. Um, and, and if we had to buy another, you know, 200 million tests, so we could test almost everybody in the United States, which is unlikely we would need to do that. Um, you know, you still, that's still not up to a hundred billion dollars yet. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing that, um, that we need is uh, personal protective equipment for the healthcare workers. So we are so short on masks, um, eye protection, any, you know, all the personal protective gear. Um, again, it seems like money could help with that. You know, everything that everyone who's manufacturing something that's similar to that seems like, you know, they could turn over their factory, I would say at the government's expense. Uh, you know, the government pays to convert it over and they'll pay to convert it back. Hmm. Um, and they'll pay a lot for every, uh, every mask that you make. Um, again, a way to sort of, uh, get people working who right now aren't working. Um, you know, and, and so rather than paying people to sit home, let's pay them to, to do the stuff we want them to do. I don't know how easy that is to do. I don't know how easy it is to retrain people who are, um, you know, making uh, paper products to make masks. Um, but that, that seems like, uh, you know, another potential way for us to use our money to get the stuff that we want. Um, but again, it would have to be sort of the government as the purchaser rather than the hospitals, because uh, the hospitals are just bidding against each other for the existing supply. And the, um, the manufacturers have no guarantee from the hospitals that they will continue to purchase this stuff if they make that investment to switch over their factory. So I would love to see the government say, we will purchase it all. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't have to worry about it. We're going to guarantee you a profit on this. Um, the third thing we need is, is isolation. We need to be able to isolate people who test positive. Um, and gosh, we've got a lot of hotels that are sitting empty. So why not put them up in hotels? You know, we could have sort of like Corona hotels and um, the government could pay $200 a night for people to stay in these hotels. Uh, and the people who are there who aren't that sick, you know, they would still be quarantined. They could hang out with other people. They'd have social interactions. They could have parties if they want. Um, and so pe people who people who are positive can't hurt each other. That's right. That's right. In fact, they can help take care of each other. Mm. Uh, they could, you know, some of them are going to be have very mild symptoms. They could work for the hotel and earn extra money, get to stay there for free, free room and board, and they get paid. Um, you know, again, this would be a very small amount of money, but it would help to save the hotel industry. It could help to save the restaurant industry because the restaurants would have to provide the food for the hotels. Um, you know, these are things that we already know how to do. So rather than paying hotel workers um, and hotel chains to, to have people sit at home, um, you could be, you know, the, the hotel workers who are not infected would probably not be able to work at their jobs. But um, the, the people that work for the support industries that bring the equipment to the hotels that, um, you know, that support the hotels in other ways, they would be able to keep their jobs because the hotels would now be a... Uh, an industry that was essential. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all the people who were in the hotels, you know, would be able to recover without exposing other people um, to the virus. And then the last thing, which I guess I know the most about, uh, is research. And I can tell you, you know, um, in my own hospital, uh, yesterday, you know, we, we had a call of, of various researchers and we're trying to prioritize projects. You know, which ones are we getting, which things are we in our patients? Um, that shouldn't be happening, at the, you know, at a hospital by hospital level. That needs to be happening at a much better coordinated level where we have protocols that are drafted. Um, it would be great if it was done by the NIH and then just get hospitals to sign up. And uh, the worst thing is that, you know, what we've got is a lot of people getting um, medicines that might work um, and they get them uh, under what's called compassionate use. Um, so in each individual case, uh, they have to petition the uh, IRB, the Institutional Review Board, to allow them to give a medicine for an indication that it's not approved for. Mm -hmm. And then they give people uh, hydroxychloroquine chloroquine or, or um, antiviral drugs or, um, you know, whatever things we're thinking might work. But we don't learn anything from it. So I understand that the desire of people to have something. But um, if we just give them something and we, we're not able to study it, then we don't know what to tell the next group of people and the next group and the next group. And our, our ignorance just goes on for years. And this whole epidemic could pass and we still might not know anything about how to treat coronavirus. So, um, you know, I said that that's the thing that I think we most desperately need leadership and, and really from the federal government to coordinate uh, all of these different sites to, um, to use the medicines that we have 
um, for the people who are willing to be in trials, and everybody should really be able to be in a trial if they're willing to be, um, and so that we can use those medicines and find out which ones work and which ones don't, if any of them work. Gotcha. So, um, what's what's your your modeling for what the disease will look like in the United States if we don't do these or or similarly effective things? So I don't think that, you know, it's, it's not like we're not doing anything. I mean, you know, we've been, we've been locked down in the state of Ohio for, you know, about 10 days now. Um, I don't know if lockdown is quite the right word, but, you know, the governor closed the schools um, two weeks ago tomorrow. And, um, on the, so that was on Friday, he closed the schools on Sunday, he closed all the restaurants and bars. Um, and then several days after that asked everybody, uh, to stay home. And so now we're starting to see the impact of that. Um, I've been tweeting out every day, the number of, uh, new cases of coronavirus and actually it's, it hasn't stopped going up, but the rate of increase has slowed, um, in the beginning, you know, it was increasing by um, 30, then 40 percent a day. Um, and we've now had three straight days of less than a 30 percent increase. So I think we're definitely seeing a, a flattening of the curve in Ohio. I'm sure that we're going to see it in New York now that people are starting to take that seriously. Um, you know, Massachusetts seems like they're doing a pretty good job. So uh, I think you know, we are changing it. If everybody really did stay home, um, that would stop the spread of the virus. So I think, you know, people are, are doing that. Um, and what we may see is, you know, new pockets of the virus exploding in states where they're not doing that yet. Um, so, you know, if you said, well, if everybody just went back out and interacted everybody with everybody else, um, you know, we would have, millions and millions of cases and, and the hospitals would be even more overwhelmed than they are right now. Um, but the New York hospitals are, are pretty much overwhelmed, um, you know, as it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, the number of deaths is, is just sort of unbelievable. Um, so that, that, you know, if we don't do a lot more, there are going to be a lot more New Yorks. Um, so, so our, our president our president suggested that we sh he wants this to be over by Easter. Um, it doesn't sound like you agree with that. Well, I would like it to be over by Easter. He would like it to be over by Easter, but he can't make it be over by Easter by declaring that it's over. Just like, you know, he couldn't make there be four million tests just by saying that there were four million tests. Um, you, you know, and I I think that for the most part this has been. Um, you know, this has been driven by local governments. Um, I think there have been a number of governors who've been, um, you know, really great. Um, and they've, um, they've really stepped up. They've taken risks uh, in terms of backlash and whatnot and um, done a lot to really um, protect the public. So uh, I think that this is going to be a kind of a state by state thing. We're not seeing the sort of national leadership. And if he says on April 15th, okay, everyone can go back to work, people aren't going to go back to work if they see that there are lots of cases all over the place. And employers are not going to ask them to come back um, 
because th that's not where they're looking for their leadership. Uh, but I also don't think that that Anthony Fauci is going to let him say that. I, you know, he, he's been pretty careful, um, and I think that most people, you know, um, have heard his name now, and they understand that, uh, you know, there is there are some scientists left in the government, uh, and and that they are listened to. Um, but you, you know, you can't believe the things that you hear the president say day to day. I just, I, I thank I wanted to thank you for. Um you know, taking this time on your day off and and wondering if there's anything you kind of want to leave folks with. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there's two things. One is uh, we will get through this. Um, you know, I actually have a lot of faith in people and I, I think we're actually sort of hardwired uh, to be afraid of infectious diseases and, to, um, you know, the social distancing stuff is it's not that hard to to adapt to once you sort of get it in your mindset and i noticed the last couple of days just you know going for a walk around the block that people i don't know who are coming in the opposite direction are veering off the sidewalk just to, to give me six feet of clearance mm -hmm. um so i think that's that's a kind of natural thing and and um so i think that you know we're going to get through this um the other thing is that uh, I think this is going to be with us uh, for a while, um, and it's hard to know how this is going to change our society and the way that we think about these things, but um, it, this isn't going to be something that we're going to get over quickly. Um, so we'll just sort of have to stay tuned. Um, but I would, you know, the, the things, uh, I guess the other thing I would want people to do is really go with the scientific, um, with the scientific data. The CDC is a reliable source of information, and so I would go and, you know, you can read a lot of stuff on their website. Um, there are no conspiracies going on here, and there isn't anything that people are afraid or won't tell you about. So, um, you know, don't go reading stuff on, on um, you know, blogs and, and people's Facebook pages and, and uh, think that you understand that anything that, that you're not getting in a uh, public um, you know, information that's that's coming directly from either the federal government uh, through the CDC or your state governments through their um, um, <clears throat> through their departments of public health. There's a lot of good information out there, um, and so I, I I would go to trust trusted sources and don't uh, have your behavior be shaped by stuff that you read on the internet. All right. Um, well, Michael, thank you so much for, for taking the time. It's been, it's been a long overdue conversation. I'm sorry that we had to make it about this and, uh, and not uh, some of the other things we've, been, we've talked about over the years. Um, but let's, uh, when, when, when the sun shines again, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, plant-based nutrition and, and your, your views, your skepticisms, your, uh, you know, your take on the research, because you're always a, a sounding board whenever I get excited about something to... Uh, to get a, um, you know, a, a wider perspective. So I, uh, in, in addition to uh, loving you as a brother, I, I rely <laughs> on you as a, uh, as my own, um, you know, anti-confirmation bias. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, and we would have a lot of fun doing that. I would definitely be happy to come back on your show. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. Stay, stay safe. Love to everybody. And uh, talk to you again soon. All right. Take care, Howie. Okay. Bye, Michael. 
All right. I hope you found that valuable, helpful, informative. Um, I would love for Michael to write it, that up and, and put it in the New York Times as an op-ed. I think it's uh, given our current situation and given the, um, the, the nature of our society, his suggestions um, seem extremely cheap compared to the cost of doing nothing. And, uh, you know, maybe capitalism is partly to blame for the problem. So uh, let's let's let capitalism do, maybe do its bit to uh, to help us out of it. Um, so just a personal note. So we are stuck here. We found out this morning that the flight we were the final flight we were going to try to take the KLM through Amsterdam was canceled. Uh, we are in lockdown. We're in a safe place, a beautiful place. Uh, we do have access to outs- outdoors, and there is uh, currently plenty of food and uh, cleaning supplies. So everyone who's been wondering and worried, uh, we are at this moment doing just fine. Um, and I don't really have, you know... <laughs> advice or or counsel this is not my area all i can say is as michael said in the in the conversation all the things that we do to be healthy the rest of our lives are doubly important now so i'm looking for way i might be here for two months i don't know so i'm looking for ways to be supportive and to be helpful and frankly (laughs) to pay my mortgage while i'm away from my business my office you know josh and i in sick to fit we pivoted um to in-person live retreats and uh those are obviously not going to be happening for a while. We have sub one one still on the books for the beginning of June 2020, which may or may not happen depending on, uh, you know, the world. We're all just sort of corks floating in the in the great rushing river right now. So, uh, you know, no, no predictions and, and no amount of control. Um, but if you would like to to work with me somehow, maybe we can do virtual groups. I seem to be able to get a decent internet here to do Zoom calls or personal one-on-one calls or, or email coaching. If there's any way that I can support you and we can make it, you know, I'll do it. I'll do it for free, of course. Um, and if there's a way that uh, we can make it a financial exchange so that I can uh, maintain all of my, my mortgage, my lifestyle in uh, North Carolina while I'm here um, spending double to uh, to be in this uh, in this foreign country that would be awesome too but don't hesitate to reach out whatever you need uh, the num the email is hj at plantyourself.com I'm also on uh, whatsapp um, and so if you if you aren't familiar with whatsapp it's what the rest of the world uses to talk to each other um, to do video to do text to to do audio calls so I'm available um, on that so thank you everybody thank you gosh for everyone who's been listening to this podcast over the years um, it's weird to be so sort of geographically and kind of experientially separate from from so many of you but i want to i want you to know you're you're in my heart and uh as michael said we you know human spirit is resilient and uh hopefully we will we will get through this thing together one way or another and i've never said it with more fervor be well my friends all right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parang Ganchik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoraska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.